Welcome to the Shadron Berean Church Podcast, where you'll find some of the latest teachings from Shadron Berean Church in Shadron, Nebraska. We are a loving community of believers growing in God's grace in Christ together. The heartbeat of our church is to have deep roots in the Word of God and to bear fruit by passionately applying it to our lives by His power for His glory. And we thank you for joining us. fallen world um, with so many failures and so many troubles, uh, we long for new beginnings, um, fresh starts, new starts in our world. Reset buttons are a good thing, amen? Maybe you're here today and you've royally screwed something up <laughs> and you're, you're kind of wondering if there's a way forward. Uh, maybe you're here and you're kind of feeling like you're at wit's end, you've tried to live life your way, and you've just come up wanting. Um, You're wondering if there's more, if there's something you missed. Well, the Apostle John has good news for us today, if that's you, that no matter who you are, no matter what you've done, there is hope for a new beginning. There's hope for new life, new purpose. That's sort of what we're going to talk about today, as we finish up our study on the seven sayings of the Savior while He was on the cross. Um, If you're just joining us, that's what we've been looking at uh, last Sunday, Good Friday, and then today we're going to finish up the study. All last words are significant, uh, but no words are so significant as those final seven sayings of Jesus' earthly life on the cross, which really help us understand what was going on in that, on that cross. And this cross, guys, uh, is it's the, the apex of human history. It's the greatest moment in the history of the world where our sins were paid for. And uh, if you're just joining us, I want you to know you can find other messages online. Um, if you missed those, you want to check those out. But we're going to pick it up in John chapter 19 today, uh, verse 25. So far in John's account... Uh, Jesus has been handed over to the authorities. He's been crucified. They've placed that placard above his head, which says the king of the Jews. And uh, the soldiers have cast lots for his garment, uh, garments fulfilling a 1,000-year-old prophecy. So that's where we're at. Verse 25, But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and uh, Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, which is just a self-reference to John himself, that's the author including himself, uh, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. And he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour the disciple took her uh, into his own household. So chronologically, uh, this is the third saying that, that we're going to look at. We've looked at the first and second chronologically and the fourth, but we're going back now to the third, where Jesus entrusts his mother's care to the Apostle John. That's what we might call the word of compassion. Uh, woman, behold your son, and looking to John, he says, behold your mother. So if you wonder why Jesus is being so brief in his comments, you have to... We have to remind ourselves that uh, 
Jesus is extremely exhausted and extremely parched, hasn't had a drink in a long time. And um, that's probably an understatement that he's extremely exhausted. I mean, he's hanging on a cross. This is the worst form of punishment uh, in the history of the world. I mean, the Romans' crucifixion, is uh, I think it started with the Persians, but the Romans took it and they perfected it to, to, to increase suffering to, the, to its maximum point. Uh, the idea was to keep them there as long as possible, suffering. So that's where Jesus is at. And, and, and as I begin to get into these uh, different uh, sayings of Jesus, I want to point out for those of you who are just joining us that none of the gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, all record all the sayings. They don't record all the sayings. So uh, Matthew and Mark, they only record one of the sayings. Luke has a few, and then John has a few. And that's, uh, that's not uh, so that, uh, you know, it's not that we can't harmonize the Gospels, but uh, we can. But the reason for that is because each writer, each author, had a different purpose in writing in the first place. So they didn't include all the details. They, they had a different purpose. We could call that their master thought. So when they went to write the book, when John went to write John, he had a master thought in his mind. This is what I want to communicate. This is what I want to accomplish in it. So that's what he's doing. He's trying to teach us something, trying to accomplish something. So they aren't, these gospel writers, they aren't just telling all of the history that they know of. Right? They're not recording everything that happened with, to Jesus that they know of or could remember. Um, it's not just a narrative story either. So um, they're going to teach us, what the gospel writers do is they teach us one main theological thrust, one main thought, and they do it through both retelling the history of Jesus and in a narrative story format. So they're kind of combined. It's historical narrative that omits or includes certain details to support their master thought, if that makes sense. Uh, in the book of Mark on Good Friday, we noted how Mark wanted us to see the forsakenness and lonesomeness of Jesus on the cross so that his readers would be prepared to persevere under trial. That's the emphasis in Mark, discipleship all the way to the end. Because Mark's original audience is going through persecution, so they're like, he's, he's trying to get them to learn from Jesus, to persevere. John, however, shows us, uh, even though Mark kind of really displayed Jesus as totally abandoned, totally forsaken by everyone and everything, right? There was even a man in the Garden of Gethsemane who forsook everything not to follow Jesus, including his own clothing. But, but, but John shows us that he, he really was not totally abandoned, at least the whole time. There were others there. Um, John was there, and it appears uh, he was there in the beginning, and he left, and he takes Mary to his home, and then he comes back, and he witnesses some of the last sayings of Jesus. So it's John and Mary and some of these other familiar women who followed Jesus. But John's reason for writing is made explicitly clear in chapter 20, in the next chapter, verses 30 through 31. He says, Therefore, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in His name. So again, John says he could have written all sorts of things about Jesus that 
we don't even know about. He did things that we have no idea about. But here he tells us that he was very intentional in choosing the things that he did. In what he wrote down, already recorded in his book, he wrote down specific signs to convince us that Jesus is the Son of God and that he died for our sins so that we can be born again, so that we can have a new beginning, we can have eternal life. And so John is very evangelistic. He's really writing for to non-believers, people who haven't trusted Christ as their Savior. So that, that we could call his purpose, that we might believe in Jesus, find new and eternal life. And you see it, John's emphasis. This is so cool. Once you start to uh, comprehend the authorial intent of these Gospels, um, it's really neat because you start to see it all throughout their writing, like right in the beginning. What, what does John start with? John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, right? In the beginning was the Word. All you have to do is think Genesis. Um, he, he, he's saying, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was Jesus. In the beginning was Jesus. And all things came into being through Creator Jesus. And so the thought eventually conveyed is, if Jesus created this world in the beginning, well then, surely He can bring a new beginning to it, Right? I mean, if He created it, certainly He can restore it when it fell into sin. Genesis 1 through 2, we see creation's perfect, right? A man has harmony with God. He's walking with God. And Genesis 3, Genesis 3 comes and, and man falls into sin. And all of creation gets plunged into sin. But, but John's point is in John 1 verse 14, He became flesh and dwelt among us. Why? To come and fix things. To start that restoration process, to give us a new beginning, at least spiritually, and give us the hope of a eternity with Him again. So, um, you see all of this in his introduction. He says this, even as many as received Him, received Jesus Christ as their Savior, He, he gave them the right to become children of God, again, we could say. Even those who believe in His name, who were born not of the blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but born of God, of the will of God. So if we believe in Jesus, we receive Him as our Savior, we're born of God, and we're thus His children. And so the reason why the will of God comes up in the beginning, too, is because that's what you see emphasized throughout the entire book of John. Uh, this is God's doing. John is emphasizing that God's will is being done. Especially in these final moments on the cross, he highlights it in an extraordinary way as you're going to see. New life is being accomplished and, and nothing can explain it except uh, God is behind what is going on. I mean, there's a host of ironic events. John highlights the irony of the things going on, right? Like, 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 like putting a placard above his head that says the king of the Jews, <laughs> They're like, don't, don't write that. And Pilate's like, what I've written, I've written. So God's even using Pilate, and he's using Caiaphas to, to, to basically show us God did this. God did this. Only he could do it. It's, God's will is being accomplished through all of these ironic events happening, and then it's also being accomplished through very intentional acts of Jesus. Jesus is very thoughtful and very methodical, even when he's hanging on that cross. He's got in his mind things that need to be fulfilled, like prophecy. So uh, that's the way John depicts Jesus as very intentionally doing the Father's will, doing the Father's mission all the way to the end. Jesus references the Father over 
and over and over again in John. Uh, John 10.30 says, I and the Father are one. I and the Father are one. John 5.19, the Son can do nothing by Himself. He can only do what He sees His Father doing because whatever the Father does, that's what the Son does. I mean, it's just Jesus is just always walking in step with the Father to accomplish the mission. And I think that's why John actually omits Simon of Cyrene helping to carry the cross. It's not that he didn't know about it. He just says Jesus went out bearing his own cross because he wants to emphasize Jesus carried his cross. God is the one doing this. And it's amazing to think that even in all of his unbearable pain and agony, the fate of men and the world is lying in the balance. Here's Jesus just thinking of others, thinking of his mother, uh, he, he, providing for his mother here. He, he fully keeps his duties both to God and man, even on the cross. I mean, why, we should ask, why entrust Mary to John? Well, we can assume most do that Joseph has passed away at this point. And uh, it was very difficult for widows in the first century to survive. And uh, John was also a relative, so it's, it's natural in that sense. But uh, we know Jesus had other siblings, but they were also um, up in Galilee, and it's evident that they don't believe yet. But John does. And so John is the man who is going to be able to comfort and care for them, comfort and care for Mary physically and spiritually. Um, and you have to think, too, um, from this moment, from this hour, where John takes Mary into his household, his life changed dramatically. He has a new responsibility. He's got to care for Mary. He has a new assignment. And that's what Erwin Lutzer said in his book, Christ from the Cross. When you come to the cross, you're given a new responsibility, right? We have a new mission, a new purpose. Uh, we have spiritual gifts to steward, all of these things. And I might add, too, that when you come to the cross, sometimes you just finally start to fulfill your responsibility, <laughs> that, that you've had all along, but, you know, it's, it's funny. Sometimes it's not until the Spirit of God comes into our lives and, and convicts us uh, of some of the simplest and most godly things, duties, like honoring our father and mother, that we actually start to fulfill that. I, personally, I would say it wasn't until, it was, like, it was as soon as I trusted Christ as my Savior, that was on my heart. I had to honor my father and mother. The year before I entered the pastorate, I spent the whole year just that one command, honor your father and mother. That's a command that doesn't stop when you get older, when you become independent. That's something we're doing the rest of our lives. Um, Jesus is a wonderful example of that. He shows us that part of following Jesus in our vertical relationship with him is to find Ways to honor our horizontal, natural relationships when we can. In the traditional church I grew up in, too, I would say this text was used to make something out of Mary that the Bible just doesn't. Um, I was deceived as a kid. I eventually felt the need to read the Bible for myself, and I, I was really astonished at what Scripture said about Mary. Or maybe what Scripture didn't say about Mary that I had believed. But... Um, I became convinced, actually, from the misrepresentation of Mary that I needed to get into a church where they're preaching the Bible and not superstition and not tradition. Because I, I looked at the Mary in the Bible and I'm like, well, this, this woman was blessed among women, but she was not blessed above women. You know what I'm saying? So 
She was still another sinner saved by grace through faith in Christ, just like us. Um, John's not glorifying Mary. He's, he's actually emphasizing how amazing Jesus is in his act of still caring for her. And man, I can't imagine being in Mary's shoes, can you? That son that she, she nurtured and cared for, um, dying on the cross, I, I really do think John had to just take her away from that scene. Um, it had to be so hard. So um, let's let that be a reminder to pray for those who have lost the children, right? Um, Mary's going through that right there. Um, let's look at the next word, the word of consummation. Verse 28, after this, Jesus, knowing that all things had already been accomplished to fulfill the scripture, said, I am thirsty, or I thirst. And a jar full of sour wine was standing there. So they put a sponge full of sour wine upon a branch of hyssop and brought it to his mouth. Okay, so it's worth noting that uh, between the, the third saying, where Jesus entrusts uh, the care of his mother to John and and uh, the fifth comment here where Jesus thirsts, um, things have dramatically changed. In between there was what we looked at on Black Friday, what I call Black Friday. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So by this point, right, these, these three awful hours have passed where Jesus has taken our sin upon himself. He has been given into the hands of sinners, and from noon until 3 o'clock, the lights went out. God shut the light off in the sky, and everything went dark, and Jesus drinks the cup of God's wrath for us. And so that's basically what has happened very quickly from, you know, take care of Mary to I thirst, okay? Um, his primary suffering that he's experiencing is not just physical, it's spiritual suffering where in some, some way, somehow, in ways that we cannot fully comprehend, he, he, the sinless one, actually becomes sin for us. Jesus, Jesus takes the wrath that we deserve. Uh, Isaiah 53, 6 says, The Lord has laid on him the iniquities of us all. And 2 Corinthians says he actually becomes sin for us so that we could become his righteousness. And that's the great exchange. Uh, and the doctrine of imputation. Our sins are imputed or placed upon him. I like to think of like being placed upon when you think of that word imputation. Our sins are imputed to him and, our, and his righteousness, when we trust in him as Savior, his righteousness, perfect righteousness, is imputed to us. And so we have a perfect standing before God. It's an amazing thing. I heard someone say, praise the Lord. We should all say that. That's an amazing thing. But look at this. Jesus, he, he's nears the end of drinking the cup of God's wrath. And he's thirsty. And that's what judgment does. That's, what, that's the picture of judgment in hell for eternity is a longing for just a drop of water on the tongue. Jesus drinks God's cup of wrath and he's thirsty. Second, the one in whom living water is found becomes thirsty so that, like he said earlier in John, we, could, we would never thirst again. Isn't that great? 
you'd never thirst again. Third uh, reason for this, for all practical reasons, he may have needed a drink just to moisten his throat because he's getting ready to cry out two things. Okay? And, he, and he needs to, he's going to cry out loudly. And so he's, I think he's wetting his, his tongue for that in his throat. But um, John says, and this is why I've called it the cry of consummation, because John's emphasis is on the consummation or fulfillment of Scripture. He's fulfilling Scripture just by saying, I thirst, because there was a prophecy that had to be fulfilled. Uh, the Old Testament plays a major part in John's demonstration that Jesus is the Son of God because he had to fulfill the prophecies. And so John, actually, he's going he's to quote the Old Testament directly from the Septuagint, which would be the Greek translation of the Old Testament. Sometimes he quotes the Hebrew Old Testament from memory, and then sometimes he'll just allude to the Old Testament without a direct quote. So he's just alluding to things in the Old Testament. And I mention this because... Uh, because he's writing so as to be able to share the gospel with Greeks and Hebrews. So he's both quoting the Hebrew Old Testament and the Septuagint, which would be the Greek translation of the Old Testament. So again, he's, he's writing and explaining Jewish terms so that even non-Jews can understand and believe. And he's convincing us of Jesus being the one to fulfill all these scriptures. But by taking this drink, Jesus is fulfilling a 1,000-year-old prophecy from Psalm 69, verse 21. And I think uh, this shows us on the cross, Jesus uh, really is a man, right? He really suffered. But that Jesus is not a passive recipient on the cross. It's not like everything that's happening, oh, no, this is, this is a big accident. No, actually, the Bible says Jesus was crucified before the creation of the world. I mean, this is something that him and the Father planned before he even created this world. They knew this was going to happen, and he did it anyway. You know, if I was Jesus, I was thinking about this this week. If I was Jesus, I would have came at a time when they had hot showers, hot water on demand. I would have come when they had, I don't know, modern amenities. I would have come at a time when crucifixion wasn't a thing. But he chose from eternity past to come at just the right time to die for our sins. It's pretty amazing to think about. The reference to the hyssop branch in John kind of takes our minds back to the first Passover, doesn't it? In Egypt, when the Hebrews, they slaughter these lambs and they apply the blood to the doorposts of their houses so that when God comes to, to strike the Egyptians and his judgment, his judgment passes over them. So when we put our faith in Christ, it's like we're covered by the blood of the Lamb. His judgment passes over us. And by the way, this, this is on Passover when Jesus is fulfilling Passover. It's a pretty amazing thing. Um, so the next word we're going to look at is the word of completion. It is finished. Therefore, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It's finished. And he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. And that's probably the most familiar saying of Jesus that we have, right? Everybody knows this one, most of us. And there's a reason for that, right? That's a good reason. Uh, it's important. John doesn't record the tone of what he's saying, of how he's saying it, but others say he uttered a loud cry, it is finished. And the question has, has, has always been, what's, well, what's finished, right? What's finished? What's he finishing? Well, for one, the prophecies. 
right there in the context. He's talking about these prophecies being fulfilled concerning his life and his death up until that point. They're all they're completed. He can, he can release his spirit over to the Father now. So, so ever since Genesis chapter 3, when mankind fell into sin, God promised a Redeemer right then and there. Okay, and, and, and there's been prophecy after prophecy after prophecy, just tons of them up until this point, and they're just now coming to be fulfilled. All throughout the Old Testament, there's the expectation, expectation, expectation. When's the Redeemer going to come? And then boom. There, our sin is finally paid for. It's taken care of. Isn't that amazing? What a moment. The rest of the work that Jesus has to do, it's just, it's just mop-up work, isn't it? Right? The hard stuff's over. The suffering's over. The death is over. Now, let's just mop-up. Let's show these people who we are. Right? The resurrection, the ascension, all of that, it's all mop-up. He's done what he has come to do. And that's an amazing thing. So this tells us uh, this is not a sigh of resignation. This is a cry of victory. This is a cry of accomplishment. This is Jesus completing his race. This is him paying off our debt of sin, our multi-zillion dollar debt that we owe. It's paid for. And you don't pay on a on a debt that's been paid for, right? He paid it all. The lamb has been sacrificed. There's not going to be, there's no need for more endless lines of sacrifices going to the temple. No more priesthood needed. No more dead religious works. The sacrifice has been made. And the veil, he says, it's been, it's been torn, which allows sinners like us to enter God's presence by faith in what he's done. John is emphasizing here, Jesus paid it all. He finished it. He alone accomplishes our salvation. He's all we need. And that's this, this cry of victory. It's finished is why I think it's so foolish to think that we could ever be good enough for God to accept us apart from Christ and what he's done. Or to ever think that we can do enough religious works to ever be good enough or to be accepted. That would be an insult to Christ's sacrifice, right? To see him as insufficient to pay for sins. If there was another way, if we could ever be good enough, the Son of God did not need to come and die for us. We don't look to ourselves, we look to Him, right? Well, let's look at one more thing Jesus said. The word of committal is what I've, I've called it. The word of committal. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And He cried that out with a loud voice as well. And that's in Luke 23, 46. With this, John says, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Isn't that weird? Isn't that an odd way to describe death? He gave up his spirit. It's kind of an odd way to describe it. It's not the usual way that we refer to death. Uh, and, and we certainly don't cry victory at the end, right? That's what Jesus is doing. And I think considering John's emphasis on Christ's being in control the whole time, He's conveying that this is a voluntary dismissal of his spirit into the Father's hands. Everything's fulfilled, and he gives it over. It's an amazing thing. So that's highlighted, by the way, by the way Pilate's surprised that Jesus doesn't need to have... That he's, Pilate's surprised that Jesus has died, and he doesn't need to have his legs broken. You know, on, the, on a cruci- when someone was crucified, they'd break their legs so that they couldn't breathe, and they'd die faster. 
Um, Jesus is already dead because he's given over his spirit, and the other two are still, still alive, and they've got to get him off the cross before sundown. But uh, that, that right there is a fulfillment of prophecy in itself. The Passover lambs, they weren't to break the bones because his legs wouldn't be broken like the criminals beside him. And uh, by the way, if Jesus fulfilled these prophecies, you know, just literally and definitely in his first coming, I think, guys, we can look forward to him fulfilling those prophecies <laughs> concerning his second coming. He fulfilled all those. He's going to fulfill the rest that are left. And that is an awesome thing. Um, but in John 10, 18, Jesus said, no one takes my life from me. This isn't an accident. I lay down, I added that, but he says, I lay, lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. That's an amazing thing. Jesus holds the keys of life and death. And for about 12 hours, here's what he did. He allowed himself to be betrayed into the hands of sinners. And look what they did with, did with him for just 12 hours. You guys remember during his earthly ministry, they were like, they were always trying to lay hands on him, trying to arrest him, trying to throw him off a cliff, something. But it wasn't his hour. It wasn't his hour. It wasn't his hour. But then a certain time comes along where he says, okay, you get 12 hours. And that's what they do to him. But when Jesus says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit, we have to think he's no longer in the hands of sinners anymore, is he? He's back in the Father's hands. Did you see that? There's an emphasis on hands in, in John's gospel. He's been handed over, but now he's back in the Father's hands. And so never again will he ever suffer shame. The Father's hands, guys, is a place of eternal security. I hope you had a father who exemplified that, who could hold you. And make you feel secure because that is what our heavenly father is like. None of our earthly fathers are perfect, obviously. But you see a, a father holding his daughter or son and it's just, that is the place of security. That's what our heavenly father is like. And we should take note of that this morning. No matter what we go through, we can rest knowing we are in the good hands of the heavenly father. Jesus said, those who believe in me, they'll never perish. They have everlasting life. John 10, one of my favorite verses, passages, Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice and I know them. They follow me. I give them, I give eternal life to them and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me, he's greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of my father's hand. I and the father are one. So I'm looking for a scrap piece of paper here just off the cuff. Anybody got a scrap piece of paper? If this is you, Let's consider this piece of paper, you, and you're, you know, you're kind of wrinkly, right? Because you're old, you got some defects. <laughs> you got some defects in you, right? None of us are perfect. We all fail. We all struggle. If this this piece of paper is you. Um, Jesus says you're in His hands, and then He says you're also in the Father's hands. And I could add to that, by the way, that you're indwelt by the Holy Spirit then you're in Jesus' hands, then you're in the Father's hands, you are eternally secure. And that's important for us to grasp because if we don't get that, then we're going to treat the cross haphazardly. 
We're going to start to work for our salvation again. Oh, no, I screwed up. I guess I'm not good enough. No, you're not good enough because of you or what you've done. You're good enough because he has given you his righteousness. It's not what you do. It's what he does for you, all right? I just, I don't know. That's kind of off the cuff. Here, somebody take that. (laughs) Um, So different, guys, and so powerful was Jesus' death that that Roman centurion there standing nearby says, truly this was the Son of God. Whoa, right? This centurion doesn't even need to see the resurrection. The things that happened surrounding Jesus' death were so powerful that, that there's, the centurion is praising God and is saying, certainly this man was innocent. This is the Son of God. And Luke, we looked at his purpose in including these centurions because He desires all men to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. Just like Theophilus, who he's writing to, right? Who is a Roman official. Well, here in Luke, chapter 23, a Roman official comes to faith in Christ. They had to encourage Theophilus. But let's take a truth away from this. God is a God of new beginnings. God is a God of new beginnings. What Jesus did on this day gives every single one of us reason for hope this morning. And we need hope because this world, I'll just be honest with you, I'll be frank, this world stinks lately. It is hard to watch. I can't even turn on the news anymore, guys. We all need hope. No matter who you are, no matter what you've done, you might have royally screwed something up. You might be at wit's end. How comforting to know God is a God of new beginnings, that he gives us a new beginning. That, that It doesn't spring, the season of spring teach us that. Dead things are coming back to life. It's a new beginning for creation. I love this time of year. Things are being resurrected. Okay, God, we, in Christ, we have so much to look forward to, so many new beginnings to look forward to. Death is a new beginning. We got the resurrection coming, just like Christ. We're all going to be resurrected. We're going to have glorified bodies. We have a new heaven and a new earth coming, and it's going to be amazing. And while it, it encourages us in that regard, John is not so much writing to believers as he is to non-believers. He's writing to those who haven't trusted Christ as their Savior. And so they're still under judgment. He writes, so that you who haven't received Christ, that you might believe that He is the Christ, the Son of God. And that by believing, you might have life in His name. And so the question remains is, have you trusted Christ as your Savior? Because that's all He asks of you. He's not asking you to try harder. He's not asking you to to, to just do better, turn over a new leaf on your own. He's not even asking you to get religious. I would argue he's not even asking you to surrender your life to Christ. I'm still trying to do that. All he's asking you is to believe. He's asking you to, to trust in what he's done for you. It's not about you. It's about what he's done for you. Simply believe. Believe in who Jesus is. Believe in what he's done for you. Because that's where life is found. John wants you to find this life, this incredible life. New life now by the Spirit of God when you're born again spiritually. And then you, you start to walk with him. You start to surrender your life to him. And then eternal life forever with him. So have you trusted in Christ as your Savior? You know that word believe, that could be translated to trust. And uh, trust, believe, and faith, they all come from the same Greek word. And John's just here asking you, 
to, to put your trust, to put your faith in Jesus. Because we all trust something, right? I could say right now, you guys are trusting those chairs to hold you up. You didn't question them, did you? You had confidence when you sat down, that chair was going to hold you up. What are you trusting to hold you up before God when you meet Him? What are you trusting in? If, if you died tonight and you had to stand before God and He said, why should I let you into my heaven? What would you say? I, I can imagine many would start rattling off and many are right now. Yeah, talking about how, I, I, you know, I wasn't that bad of a sinner. I never killed anybody. I grew up in church. I, I gave some money to charities. I, I got baptized. Look, look, God's not interested in that. He doesn't care. This is about what Jesus has done. He's concerned with whether or not you trusted in what He did for you. Have you trusted in Christ alone? Don't look to yourself. Look to Him and what He's done. So, if that's you, if you want to trust Christ as your Savior, you might express that. It's not the prayer that saves you, but you might express to God in prayer. God, I know I'm a sinner, and I, and I just pray something from the heart. God, I know I'm a sinner, and I, and I want to trust in you as my, my Savior alone from my sin. And teach me to walk with you. That's, that's all you might say. If you, you do that, if you accept Christ, I think you're going to find that this, this Jesus is really real. He's not dead. He's alive. And He will change your life. I know because, I don't know, I used to be in a tractor and now I'm in a pulpit. But he, he gives, I don't know, he does, he has a, He'll have a new assignment for you maybe. You'll find new life in Him, a new purpose. And, uh, you know, I can't think of a better way to end this series on last words than by turning to the last words of the Bible. In the final chapter, he invites us to spend eternity with him at zero cost to us. Why zero cost? Because he paid it all. Let the one who is thirsty come. It's an invitation. Come. Let the one who wishes take the water of life without cost. Thank you.